0: Look, I, I think nobody can rest until you're Rolex, really, you know? And the, the reason I say that is because if you talk to anybody, even in Manhattan or Los Angeles or Miami or some you know, major market in the U.S., the majority, and I really do mean the majority of people you'll, you'll meet will not have heard of anything besides Rolex.
1: Hey, everybody, I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinky Radio. Uh, We're back with another special Watches and Wonders pod. Uh, I've got Ben and Jack on the microphones again. How are you guys doing?
0: Doing great, Stephen. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. Jack, how about you?
2: Yeah, doing uh, doing pretty fantastic.
1: Are you sick of watches yet?
2: Actually, I have found myself kind of rejuvenated in terms of interest in watches. This has been the most exciting 24 hours uh, watch-wise that we've had in an awfully long time, and I've never felt so alive.
1: Amazing. Love it. That's what I like from Jack. Well, I think you're going to enjoy this too because we're here to talk about some of your favorite brands, and I know some of yours as well, Ben. We're going to talk about the design houses. We're going to talk about Bulgari. We're going to talk about Cartier, and we're going to talk about Hermes. And I think, you know, spoiler alert for everybody: like these three brands kicked ass. Like they really, I think, did a pretty great job
0: this year. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they, they we look all of us on this on the Zoom have been kind of longtime supporters of of these three manufacturers in, in particular, and I think uh, strong year all across the board for sure. sure. Yeah. Well, let's dive right in. Let's go to Bulgari first.
1: We'll go uh, in, in alphabetical order here, keep things fair. Jack, you want to introduce us to kind of the, not just the big boy from Bulgari's lineup, but like, I would say one of the more impressive watches of the entire show in the Octo Finissimo QP.
2: Yeah, the Octofinissimo Perpetual Calendar was... You know, I got to say you wonder how many world's records a brand can break. Since they started breaking records in 2014 with the Octafinisimo line, it's been it's been 7 years, it's been 6 world records and uh, they are just coming with amazing regularity year after year after year. The design is one that is not the octofinissimo line is not all that old, but it, one of the things that's amazing to me is the fact that it's it feels like it's been around for a lot longer than it's been around. It's become iconic for Bulgari. A lot faster than I would have thought would be possible back in 2014. So this is a micro rotor, automatic movement with a perpetual calendar, with a retrograde date display, and a, and also I think I missed this in the in writing the story, but also a retrograde leap year display. And it's just a fa- it's a fantastic piece of technical watchmaking. And one of the most interesting things to me about it was the design of the Octa Finissimo watches looks very, very, it looks fairly austere, you know, it's uh, it's quite, you know, sort of modernist in inspiration, uh, very clean, lean, urban, you know, sort of postmodern inspired design. And uh, you look under the dial, which the owners of these watches will not probably be able to do unless they either know a Bulgari watchmaker really well, or they look at the press images, but there's a lot of really gorgeous looking traditional movement finishing happening under the dial as well. And more... On the dial side than on the movement side.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I, I think to me, the thing that struck me is like the, so many of the Octo Finissimo iterations are like so pared down. Like you said, they can be kind of austere. And this one I think manages to get a lot of information on that dial while still kind of maintaining that. Like it still feels really clean and crisp and, and airy. It doesn't have any of that kind of like heaviness of a traditional complication.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think this watch, there's two things that I find kind of interesting about this watch. The first, which kind of harkens back to my comment on the Lange yesterday, uh, is that this is a perpetual calendar that is like very, very legible. And I think when you actually like use a perpetual calendar, which I've at least tried to do in my you know recent past, the day of the month is is definitely what you referenced the most. And the fact that they made this kind of like central to the design here, I think is, is, is very smart. And then having a leap year as a retrograde is, is kind of neat too. The other thing that I would definitely want Jack's opinion on here is, so this is now the thinnest self-winding perpetual calendar. And the watch that it took that title from is the RD2 from AP, which is in some ways a very different watch, but I guess in, in this way, a very, very similar watch. And of course, you know, really different price points, Again, both integrated bracelets. I mean, how do you feel this compares, Jack, to the rb 2 And then technically, how, how different is it?
2: Oh, man. It's like, a, you know, those two watches, it's like Ginger and Marianne and Gilligan's Island. Like, why do I have to choose? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, speaking of perpetual calendars, I'm really dating myself. I mean, the Bulgari is not that much thinner. They're definitely within spitting distance of each other in terms of thinness. They both have a similar strategy in terms of how to get a perpetual calendar that flat. So you look under the dial with the Bulgari and the perpetual calendar works have basically been suppressed into wells cut into the bottom plate of the movement, which is a strategy that AP employed as well. The Bulgari uses a micro rotor caliper, which right away gives you a little bit of an advantage in terms of trying to make things as thin as possible. The AP is based, I mean, very, very loosely. It's I'm, To say that it's based on the 2120 is uh, pushing it a little bit, but the automatic winding system is certainly from the 2120. And that's almost, you know, that's a design from the 1960s, but that's almost a peripheral rotor movement. That's as far as you can push a full rotor, centrally mounted movement, I think, without actually turning it into a peripheral rotor, you know, design. And there's some conceptual similarities between the two. Uh, Gosh, the, uh, the AP has a moon phase and the Bulgari does not. I think the AP is perhaps a little bit more uh, a little bit more of a romantic watch and a little bit less a uh, sort of exercise in cerebral design intelligence but you get under the hood and while there's a tremendous number of things that are different in the execution the basic solution which is okay let's figure out how to get the going train out of the way the automatic winding train out of the way and suppress the uh, perpetual calendar works to the same level as basically everything else in the movement. That's the thing that those two watches have in common. But they feel it, I think, I don't know, we, we've been talking about feeling a lot lately in talking about the, uh, the new watches from Watches and Wonders. The feeling that I get from those two watches is really, really different. And I think that they're gonna appeal, the common point of appeal between the two of them is going to be people who love technically forward-looking, beautifully, traditionally finished perpetual calendars uh but they might appeal to very beyond that beyond people who are just you know like very very financially well-endowed gearheads i feel like they're going to appeal to different groups of people
0: yeah i mean it, it it's funny because you know now that i'm looking at them I, I i keep thinking that the rd2 is platinum but it's not the production one is also titanium right. so so the the ap and the bulgari are both titanium on titanium bracelet which is interesting i
2: think the ap is actually is, is not the ap production version platinum platinum on titanium yeah I think it has titanium.
0: No, it's it's the other way around. So the 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 prototype like the the RD2 was actually a, a platinum case uh and now it is a titanium one with with platinum accents. So it's effectively titanium. That's right. Titanium. That's right.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing here is we get there's the titanium version that's all titanium and then there is a platinum version on a strap with with a blue dial for the Bulgari mm. and I'm kind of curious. I mean for me like these Octophanesimo watches are are always going to be about the full titanium versions on the titanium bracelet like Sure, the ones on straps, the ones with different dials, like, fine. But to me, it's it's this, like, full matte titanium look that always takes the cake. Yeah. I don't know about for you guys. Like, what what do you guys think? Do you have a preference between the two? Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the, this design, even though some of the earliest Octofonissimos were on strap, it, it really comes alive on bracelet. I, I own one of these one of the time onlys. And it, it's a bracelet watch. And I think it should be on a bracelet. You know, if it's like wearing... You know, one of those gold Royal Oaks that they made, you know, 10 years ago on on a strap. And it just like, it just doesn't feel finished to me. Nothing against wearing things on a strap. But I think when you have something this slim, it, it really belongs on a bracelet from my side.
2: Yeah, and platinum was an interesting choice for Bulgari for this particular watch, because to your point, Ben, the titanium is a no-brainer. It's a bead-blasted titanium is kind of uh, as much the native material for Bulgari Octo Finissimo as steel is for the Royal Oak, or as steel is for the Patek Philippe Nautilus. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this launch is that this is the first time that they've actually used platinum for an Octo Finissimo case. And the stuff is a nightmare to machine, as we all know, you know, it's uh, it, it dulls cutting tools at an unbelievably higher rate than just about anything that is conventionally used for watch materials. And the fact that it's such a giant nightmare to machine, I don't know if that's one of the things that kept Bulgari away from it, necessarily. I don't know if it was an aesthetic decision. But as they have moved into more traditional case finishings in the most recent steel version of the Octo Finissimo Automatic, you know, and in this watch, you know, you set yourself up for a tremendous challenge in trying to make this watch in titanium. It's just, it's it's an awful, awful, you know, it's an awful material to work with just from a machinist standpoint.
1: Totally. And then Ben alluded to this earlier, but the price on this watch is actually, I think, one of the more interesting things. In titanium, on a bracelet, this watch is $59,000. That, I mean, $59,000 is a lot of coin, right? Like, that is a luxury car. That is, like, a chunk of a down payment on a house. Like, that. that is a lot of money. However, for an ultra-thin perpetual calendar from, like, a world-class brand— and this is like a real integrated perpetual calendar. This isn't like some module tossed on top of a, an, an ETA movement here. Right. I
0: think that's kind of a steal. Like, I, I was shocked when I saw the price. Yeah, I, I think the, the Octo finissimo has always you know kind of been very respectful of what it is and what it isn't and what it is 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 a wonderfully made thing by one of the most esteemed kind of jewelry houses in the world and what it is not is an AP or a or a Patek and i think they're they're always kind of conscious of the fact that like okay if the price you know if you're going to have price parity with with something like a Patek or an AP like you're going to kind of lose, and, and that's okay. And so I think they're just conscious of the fact that, like, they do need to be a little bit under, and by a little bit, in this case, quite a bit under, a comparable watch from an AP or Patek. And, and again, you know, the, the, the RD2 or the, the ultra-slim petrol from AP is 140,000 Swiss, you know, so more than two times the price. And that's the ultra-ultra-slim. If you were even just buy the standard steel Royal Oak perpetual, I think that's probably got to be in the 80s, you know, considerably more money still. And the, these these I, I think, are really becoming amazing value propositions for those people that either don't want to deal with the nonsense of these, you know, incredibly comfortable Royal Oaks and, and Nautiluses, or or those that just just value their their money and just don't kind of care about the brand. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the Bulgari brand. I mean, in many ways, the Bulgari brand is bigger than than both Patek and AP in the real world, just not in the watch world. Yeah.
2: Hey Ben, can I? There's a question that I've wanted to ask you for a while now, and I've just sort of never gotten around to asking it. You can ask me anything, Jack. <laughs> anything. <laughs> oh boy. So, uh, B- 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 Bulgari, you know, it's obviously a renowned jewelry house, and uh, they have been famous for what they do with high-end jewelry in in their own design language for many, many years. Do you still think of them as a jeweler that makes watches, or do you think that they've established themselves in the fine watchmaking space at this point so securely that they can kind of rest in their identity as a fine watchmaker at this point?
0: Look, I I think nobody can rest until you're Rolex, really. You know, and the the reason I say that is because if you talk to anybody, even in Manhattan or Los Angeles or Miami or some you know major market in the U.S., the majority—and I really do mean the majority of people you'll you'll meet—will not have heard of anything besides Rolex, even Patek or even I mean maybe Omega because of James Bond or the Olympics, but really not even. Uh, and so I think you know, unless you're Rolex, you got to keep pushing. And I think you know, it reminds me, frankly, of Hodinkee, and it's like Hodinkee is this big thing in this very small world. And it's like, you know, you know, I've seen people ask for Jack's autograph and take selfies with Steven. And then, you know, on, on the street, we're just normal people. And I think that's kind of how Bulgari is, is viewed here. It's like in the watch world, it is, you know, to us, to people who know, it is just is highly – Interesting and respected and and coveted, but but still, I think they have to continue to work to kind of validate their place. Again, going back to the conversation we had yesterday, in in this kind of crazy homogenous world of of watch consumption, which really only cares about two brands, maybe three, maybe four, if you include Richard Mille. But yeah, I think they do have to continue to work, just as Tag Heuer, Omega, Vacheron, Longa, everybody has to work.
2: So here's another question for both of you, uh, as kind of like seriously dialed in watch design guys. I was talking to Fabrizio Bonamassa, who's the head of watch design at Bulgari, a couple of days ago, and I found out something really interesting, which was that their original vision for this watch was that it would have a big date. And he said that they found out, they, they discovered in the course of prototyping that the big date would have made it uh, a little bit too thick. So they moved away from that. And he w- he said he was relieved that they'd moved away from that because he felt like it would not necessarily have worked all that well with the Octo Finissimo design. So what do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the retrograde is definitely, you know, kind of a reference to the the Bulgari stuff that they did with Gerald Genta way back when. And there were some big dates used back then. So that that would have computed. I don't think it would have looked all that great, to be totally honest with you. I'm glad they went in this direction for sure.
2: Well, Fabrizio feels the same way,
0: apparently. <laughs> Good. He's also like the coolest guy there is, like the best dressed, like, you know, just like dialed in guy that, that yeah. there is. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm not actually a huge fan of retrogrades in general. I don't know why. I'm just not. But I think that this is well done, certainly. And again, I'm I'm such a huge fan of Octo Finissimo. And you know, again, I, I made that 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 kind of like snide remark yesterday about being like, if somebody came up to me and showed me a 5711 with a green dial, I wouldn't be impressed at all. Meanwhile, if somebody came up to me with yeah. any Octo Finissimo on the wrist, I would be massively impressed because this like it shows that like okay, like you you want something you want something in the style of what is very in vogue right now, which is integrated steel sports watch, or you know you know in this case not steel titanium, but you get the idea. But you have the foresight to buy something that is less expensive, more interesting, you know, just as high quality in, in many regards and 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 is yours. And so I think, you know, these are watches that I really love. And again, anytime I do see somebody wearing these out on the street, I, I give them serious props for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. I completely agree. I mean, while we're talking about design, there is another Bulgari I, I want to just touch on for a second before we move on and that is the third collaboration that they've done with Tadao Ando, yeah. uh, the Japanese architect, maybe my favorite living architect, and these watches are incredible. I mean, the first one I absolutely love, the the titanium time only, the Turbion they did in carbon. Huh. Cool, not my favorite of them, but cool. This one is is kind of a different vibe. It's not monochromatic. It's a matte ceramic case. It's got this, like, deep blue dial that's meant yeah. to look like the night sky. Has this little, like, gold sliver of a moon on it. I mean, I'll be honest. I heard there was a new Tadao Ando coming and got really excited. I think this is maybe my least favorite of the three, mm-hmm. but still a cool watch. And, and I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that this kind of pairing of this, like, renowned minimalist Japanese architect and this kind of, like, over-the-top Roman jewelry brand have come together to make ultra-thin watches out of titanium and ceramic. Like, it's just such a weird thing. I'm just hoping they keep rolling with it. Like, I think even if this one isn't my favorite, I'd love to keep seeing these, you know, once a year.
0: Totally agree. Look, I I think Bulgari, you know, I I think has the... Opportunity to really create something special, and I think they already are with Octo Finissimo and doing these collaborations with interesting people, which Wanda certainly is. You know, I think really add some cachet and, and really add something special to this. And uh, I, I look I, again. I think the first one is probably most people's favorite. I actually totally forgot about the Turbion. I don't. I don't know why that didn't kind of cross my my desk, so to speak. <laughs> but I agree. The first one was the strongest. This is still wonderful. And again, I think it, it would be neat to continue th- this relationship for a long time.
2: So I, you know, I talked about this in the story on the perpetual calendar, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it because stuff's just been coming in so fast. 2014, seven years, six world records, an unquestionably successful design from a design standpoint. But do you guys think that there's a risk of Bulgari becoming over-identified with a single design Hmm. in the same way that some other brands have become over-identified with a single model or a single design?
0: Interesting question.
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, I think that risk is is always there, but I also think, like, if the design is a winner, like, that's a problem for tomorrow. I think if people like what you're doing, and if you're doing something you believe in and something that's interesting, like, you can't control the hype train and just let it do its thing, keep doing good work, and, like, you'll figure it out. I mean, I think the brands we've seen who are actively trying to fight that don't always get it right. And, like, I mean, just, you know, AP is the best example of this without giving them too hard of a time here, but... You know, they created code 1159 to create something new that was not a Royal Oak. And look what happened. Like, people still just want the Royal Oak. So, more than ever.
0: Who knows? Really, more than ever.
1: Yeah, exactly. More than ever. So, I don't know. I mean, I think like Bulgari's got other stuff, Serpenti, they've got other, other things. But my vote would be while this is working and while it's good and while they've got Fabrizio and while they've got watchmakers
0: designing great movements, like, keep it,
1: keep it rolling. Figure the other shit out tomorrow.
0: Totally agree. I, I couldn't agree more. And as as somebody that has has kind of run a business, kind of, you know, it's like when you have something that works, like, don't mess with it. Like if you you know, it's really it's so hard to, to make anything work. Don't want too much. And, and again, I think AP they they've is a different thing. They've they've been kind of so royal eccentric for so long. I understand why they did 1159 for sure. But as you just said, Stephen, like they have Serpenti and Serpenti is huge. It's just not huge in our world. Like, the male-dominated, like, sports watch world. Serpenti's massive. You know, I I do think because of that, like, having icons in in both kind of um, genres, I I think, is is a good place to be. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question, Jack.
2: I had a conversation with Cyril Vigneron, who's the CEO of Cartier, a couple of days ago. And one of the things that he emphasized over and over was, like— there's a new generation of enthusiasts coming up and you know not to give away the interview, but he said it's an easy mistake to make, but it's a big one to think that if you have a new generation of enthusiasts, you have to make something new for generation Z, you have to make something new for generation you know this generation for that generation. But the truth is, people want you to be who you are. The new generation wants the classics as much as the old you know, older generations. and if, if you think that you have to produce novelty for the sake of producing something new, for this new generation that actually wants you to be true to your identity, you're making a mistake.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And that's also a great way to transition us over to Cartier. I did not plan that. But that Jack, I couldn't have done it any better myself, my friend.
2: Just lobbing that one up for you, Stephen.
1: Yeah, I mean, Cartier, like that, it's clear that is Cartier's strategy, right? Like, what did we get this year? We got new Ballon Bleu, new Tank, and new Cloche, like, and some new Pasha stuff. But like... Oh, and the Pasha stuff, yeah. And the Pasha. But like... For us, the big stuff is tanks and cloches. Ballon Bleu and Pasha are huge commercially. They're obviously really important and important to that brand. But like Cartier knows to shut up and play the hits, you know, and (laughs) they do it so well. And they keep doing it year after year. And I guess like one of the questions I-
2: That's a great metaphor. They're sort of like like a classic rock station. Yeah, they're they're uh, playing
0: Freebird over and over. Exactly.
1: But like, here's the thing. I'm buying it. Like, I want, yeah. I just want Freebird over and over again. So, yeah, I mean, maybe let's let's start with, like, the most surprising or, like, le- least traditional thing and work our way down. And let's start with the the cloche. Jack, I, I know that, like, the moment we all heard this was coming, like, your phone must have exploded uh, with people wanting Jack Forrester's take on the the new cloche.
2: Oh, my God, I, I died of happiness when I found out that the cloche was the next privé piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, and how do you think they turned out?
2: I think it turned out fantastic. It's we haven't had a chance to kind of go back and look in a more thoughtful and in-depth way at the different cloche models, but you know the skeleton cloche is that's wild. It is one of the most transparent skeletonized watches that I've ever seen. One of the traditional ways that you sort of evaluate skeletonizing in fine watchmaking is you say to yourself, "Okay, how transparent is it?" And the, the greater the transparency, sort of the more successful Again, from a traditional sense, you think that a skeletonized watch is. And you have to actually look twice to see the movement in this thing. And it's there. I mean, there's a mechanism. But it almost feels like looking at a Cartier mystery clock on the wrist. It's a fantastically, fantastically transparent watch and a fantastic technical achievement. And it's not something that you necessarily – well, you, I should should speak for myself. It's not something that I necessarily prefer over the non-skeletonized version either – Uh, It's just such an exciting watch, and it's such a wonderful connection to Cartier's past. And it represents one of the biggest challenges that I think Cartier faces. We'll talk about this a little bit more, uh, you know, when the interviews come out with Cyril Vigneron and with uh, Marie-Laure next week, uh, who's the head of design for Cartier, and who oversaw this project. But, you know, they had this incredible efflorescence of creativity that happened from... The first decade of the 20th century, right up through, I would say about 1935, uh, when these designs came out, bang, 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 one after the other, that are just, every single one is memorable, every single one is classic. There were at least eight or nine fundamental tank models that came out during that period. That's just talking about the tanks. And the cloche is... Another one of those designs that you kind of can't imagine coming from anybody else. And it just was s- such a fantastic thing for me to see. Always a little bit more of a niche vintage model, I think, uh, you know, obviously than things like, uh, you know, the Tank or the Tank Centre, but just a fantastic thing for them to go back to. Yeah.
1: I mean, you mentioned tanks, right? And we we got some fun tanks this year as well. Cartier dipped into their their kind of like 80s stash and brought us some new must-to-Cartier tanks, uh, which
2: you can't say 80s stash to a guy my age without me thinking of something that has nothing to do with watches, <laughs> but but go on. That's
1: that's that's fair, Jack. I didn't think of that before my time. But we got this trio of tanks in burgundy, kind of like a Kelly green and like a dark blue, not navy, but like a real blue. They're two hands. They're quartz, but I think they're awesome anyway. I mean, Ben, what what's kind of your take on these these colorful
0: tanks? Yeah, they're great. I mean, it's what most People want from Cartier. You know, most people that that aren't you or me or Jack or you know, or probably anybody that reads so dinky. But again, that is the majority of humanity. So I, I think they're they're great and I think they'll sell like crazy. I mean, we haven't covered it yet, but they, they did this this amazing kind of take on this watch that is solar powered. Yeah. Uh, which kind of shows kind of how progressive Cartier is is kind of thinking about everything that they do, it makes a lot of sense, comes on a strap that is that looks like leather but is not leather. I mean, really kind of forward thinking stuff from you know, arguably the jewelry watchmaker uh on the planet. So yeah, I, I love the, the, the these new tanks. I, I love everything they've they've done this year. Definitely. Yeah. Hey Ben. Yes, sir. What'd you think of the cloche, man? Oh, I love it. Anything pre I'm, I'm all about, which is no surprise, obviously. I mean, I'm still an asymmetric and, and centre kind of guy, but I mean, you know, this this is wonderful and it's exactly what Cartier should be doing, and I'm happy to see them doing it. So, I, you know, I'm not criticizing them. Like, they're doing exactly what they should be doing to cater to people like the three of us. And then the tank stuff caters to everybody else. And again, there's not that many brands that do that. You know, we've talked about this before. Omega does a really great job at doing the. Hood Inky edition, the Speedy Tuesdays, the the stuff that speaks to the nerds, the enthusiasts like us. And then they do a James Bond edition that we all kind of scoff at, but like, you know, changes their revenue by like 30% every time a new James Bond movie comes out. And I think that's exactly what Cartier is doing here is like speaking to the nerd, yeah. the Jack Forsters yeah. of the world, the guy who, again, I'll remind everyone, literally wrote the book on Cartier. And then the, the tanks are for everybody else. Yeah. And I think it's great. I mean, that that's that's how you build a viable business that is interesting to everyone. Yeah, I I totally agree. I
2: said this to the folks at uh, Cartier in both the interviews I've had with them so far this week, but uh, I would have bet real money against Cartier ever doing a solar-powered quartz version of the tank.
1: And yet here we are. Here we are. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't, Jack.
2: And one of the cool things about it was, you know, again, I don't want to give away the interview, but the the only part
0: of the... Do- Give it away. Give away the whole thing.
2: One of the interesting things about that watch is the only thing about the dial that actually lets light through to the solar cell, the photovoltaic cell, are the numerals. And so going into the design process, they knew that there was a certain number of square millimeters of open space that they had on the dial. And, you know, Cartier is obsessed with proportions. And apparently one of the biggest struggles that they had was figuring out how to configure the numerals so that enough light got through to keep this thing going for 16 years, which is about how long they think it'll run before you need a service or a rechargeable cell replacement, but at the same time retaining the proportions that make a tank a tank.
1: Yeah, I mean, the cloche stuff definitely appeals to the real nerds. And I think the tanks sit somewhere in the middle, like we're interested, but it's it's still like pretty consumer-friendly product. And then at the the far end of that spectrum, I think we have a watch that like none of us are particularly interested in, but is like arguably, not even arguably, is, the most important watch to Cartier today, which is the Ballon Bleu. You know, I saw somewhere in my research as I was writing this up that at one point in the or like mid-2000s, if you had separated off Ballon Bleu into its own business, it would have been like the fourth or fifth largest watch brand in the world, just that business. So it's kind of hard to like overstate how important this is to Cartier. And we got a new 40 millimeter Ballon Bleu with an in-house automatic movement. It's Again, like the Ballon Bleu isn't my favorite Cartier personally, but it's cool to see that Cartier is taking it seriously and that they're making sure that it kind of stays up with the rest of the pack as like a full-fledged quality Cartier wristwatch.
0: Totally. And I I think, that I mean, Cartier in many ways is kind of like the Rolex of the jewelry world, even though we're talking about watches here. Like they did not need to kind of tweak the design and make it a little bit better fitting. They did not need to put an in-house movement in this. Like nobody cares about the movement of Ballon Bleu, like not one person. But they did it anyway, at some expense, I'm sure. Uh, and so again, I think that that says a lot about Cartier, and I have no doubt that this will be, a, you know, it, it already is a massive success. So it'll it'll continue to be one. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Well, unless you guys have any final thoughts on
1: Cartier, maybe let's let's go to Hermes. Let's wrap things up with Hermes. It's a slightly less complicated uh, situation that there's really only one big watch, but it's it's a serious watch. Uh, this is called the H08. Yeah. Uh and it's a new titanium sport watch from Hermes, kind of like a, I don't know, hybrid like field watch kind of techie vibe. I don't know. Like how would how would you guys describe the HO1?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is Hermes's take on something that that feels very, very 2021, and that is sports watch, casual, you know, in in the year of the pandemic or the second year of the pandemic, like nobody is wearing. Dress watches anymore. This feels—I obviously know—they've been working on this for longer than just the last year, but this feels very of the moment. And I think if if you look at even Hermes's kind of like runway collection and and all their other kind of like lifestyle products, it has taken such a more casual approach towards things over the past say eighteen months or so uh, that this isn't that surprising to me. I love the colors. I love that it, you can get it on a bracelet, which is very you know nautilus seed integrated. Whatever uh, the orange strap, I think is really really nice. You know, th- there's some things that I would tweak, date windows. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of some of the uh, motif that they use on some of the rotors from time to time. But I think this is a great watch. And I think there's such a diehard following for Hermes as a brand. I mean, it is arguably the luxury brand, you know, kind of across categories, that this is going to do really well. And, you know, I-, I can't wait to see these in the metal. And I could see a lot of people wearing these all the time because it's titanium, it's on a rubber strap. It's cool and it's Hermes. And I, I think again, if there's one thing that you can never knock Hermes for, it is their design and the typeface selection, just like with the with the Slim is 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 excellent and it's it's a beautiful thing.
2: And to follow on with that, one of the things that I actually really like about Hermes is I can't tell a lot of the time whether they're doing something formal or something casual. None of their watches and a lot of their products don't seem to fall particularly into that category. They feel like things that have been made to a very, very high degree of attention to design, to wearability, to everyday use. But there's a degree of refinement and thoughtfulness about what they do from a design perspective that kind of transcends the whole notion of doing anything in a particular category. And so like, I look at these new watches and I, I, I honestly can't tell whether it was intended as a dress watch. I can't tell whether it was intended as a sports watch. I can't tell whether it was intended as a casual watch. And I don't think it was actually intended to be any of those things. I think it was just intended to be a
0: beautiful watch. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually I'm on the site right now, just you know, because I hadn't hadn't looked at the comment section. And overall, feedback is really positive, and that as as we all know is 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 a rarity uh, yeah. for any new release, let alone you know something that that could be described as kind of a, a fashion watch. And again, it ju- it just kind of validates again that like the Hermeses, the 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 Bulgaries, the Cartiers are are really kind of coming to their own as watchmakers and this is a very very solid effort on on their part for sure.
1: Yeah. I I agree and I think the the comparisons to the Slim are interesting in that like this has its own design language, it's a completely different watch. It like they they kind of on the surface have nothing in common, but the approach taken with them is really similar, you know, to the similar way that the the Slim had the Philippe Apollog uh, you know, custom typography that kind of matched the shape of the case and really gave it its own feel. Here like same thing. Like these numerals have been shaped in the way that like, you know, the eights and the zeros look like the shape of this watch case. And like the four is shaped in a way that kind of, you know, is reminiscent of those kind of angular curved fours from, uh, you know, watches from the 30s and 40s. And the way that you get the multiple levels to the dial to really give you some depth and texture, the mix of finishes on the bracelet, like all of these things are so beautifully thought through and consistent through the product. That I think it just has, it, it seems to me, and again, I haven't seen one in the metal yet, to have some of that same like je ne sais quoi of the the slim where you just like you look at it and you're like, this this works and I don't quite know why, but everything is just kind of humming together.
2: This watch has so much je ne sais quoi that Stephen was obliged <laughs> to say je ne sais quoi. <laughs>
1: I tried, I tried not to. I was trying mid-sentence to think of a different phrase to use, and I, I came up blank. No, it works.
2: You said je ne sais quoi, and then you said I don't know, literally 20 <laughs> seconds later. You know, the eight and the nine are amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah. I'll also say, I won't say who it is, but I have a friend who texted me earlier today. He already purchased one of these and had it shipped, and it's on his wrist. Uh, and he said that, like, he never impulse buys watches, but the moment he saw this, he knew he needed to have it. And- I don't know, any any product that produces that kind of reaction in people is is working on some level.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the, the thing, you know, before you even mentioned that, Stephen, I was actually, so we are, as of, you know, two days ago, an authorized dealer for Hermes watches. And and me being me, I have the ability to go in and kind of see how, how we're doing with this stuff. And we have sold through our entire allotment of these watches on the shop. And we have, I'm looking at our waiting list here. Wow. It's significant. I mean, this is, We I know we sold those watches that we were allocated, the, you know, the first business day for sure. And we've got a good number of people that, that seem interested. And I, I think that, I mean, you know, it, we always have, you know, a little bit more insight than most. But when we're actually selling the product, we have even more insight. And like the proof is in the pudding. People like it, the comments are positive, and people are buying it. And I think in this day and age, for for six, you know, between $6,000 and $9,000, there are a lot of options from brands like Omega and Rolex, et cetera, and people are choosing to buy this, and I think that that is really encouraging, for sure.
1: Cool, well, thank you guys for doing this. I know this is like, what, the third or fourth of these you've you've done in the last, uh, like, 36 hours, but. Uh,
0: so how come I, I, I have a question now, how come I always get stuck with Jack? Where's like <laughs> Stacy and Milton Man. and Cole and all these other guys? Ben, know? that's a question I ask myself every day. Uh, You know? But
1: uh, <laughs> sorry, Jack. Nothing but love. But uh yeah, uh, it's great to get your insight. Honestly, like I know, again, Jack has literally written the book on Cartier.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, I wrote a book on Cartier. All
1: right. Jack wrote <laughs> a book on Cartier. I'll fix And it I'll was published, my, uh, to be fair. It's not, it not like published. it's just living
0: on your laptop. Yeah. It was an actual yeah. book.
1: Yeah. A real book. Yeah. book. It was not a bunch of photocopies from Kinko's, but... uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's great to get your insight and your expertise here, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure I'll drag you back on Mike soon to talk about something else. Can't wait. Thanks a
2: million, Stephen. Always a pleasure. <laughs>
1: awesome. Thanks, guys.